Hey everybody. This is a show I put together with Rob Morris of the More Freedom Foundation that some of you might have caught either live or on his YouTube channel. I thought I'd have it trimmed down and ready for you back in June when we recorded it, but, well, stuff happens. What with the president getting crazier by the week on Iran, though, I'm not sure I could have brought it to you at any better time. Excuse the first couple of minutes, the audio quality is fine, but I had to chop Rob and I up pretty good to make sure we hit the ground running instead of running through five minutes of live introductions and prep. As it is, it sounds a little weird, but you're into the action immediately. The only other news I have for you is that the first SFD news analysis show came out in the middle of last week. It's exclusive to Patreon subscribers who have put up five bucks or more, and if you want to see what it looks or sounds like, head over to patreon.com slash democracy. This is, I think, the best of the talks Rob and I have had so far, so I'll let you get right to it. I'm John Coombs, he's Rob Morris, and this is Talk for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Hello and welcome to live programming at the More Freedom Foundation. Today I uh, will be talking with John Coons of the Safe for Democracy podcast about a particularly terrible article that was published by Michael Crowley in Politico. The, the article, well, hello John, what did you think of the article? Well, I guess the, the headline is, Trump allies push White House to consider regime change in Tehran. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about, I don't know anything about the guy who wrote this, but it seems like maybe Mattis and McMaster and Pompeo all started calling Politico and changing their voice on the phone and proposing a whole series of uh, pretty disastrous proposals, and all of that made it into the article with what looks like no editing at all. It's pretty extraordinary. I talk a lot about media on the More Freedom Foundation, and I think that's why it's valuable to go through this article in detail today because I don't provide a lot of great examples of this. I went in detail on some of the claims of Graham Allison at Harvard's Belfer Center recently. But this, this article and what it says about the prospects of regime change in Tehran is, I think, very typical. I mean, this is the sort of thing, I don't think Politico is a particularly right or left-wing outlet. I think it, it, it has pretenses of objectivity, possibly a little right-leaning, your classic outlet owned by a billionaire, which seems to be, unfortunately, the only viable model for a print newspaper anymore. But, uh, it, you know, it, it generally does an okay job. I think it focuses on sort of internal machinations in Washington, D.C. But when it comes to foreign policy, 
what Politico puts out there is very similar to what is put out by pretty much every form of media. I talk a lot about how it's not really left-wing bias or right-wing bias. It, those, those, those aspects are more marketing segmentations, I, I think, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Because every outlet from Fox News to CNN to The Washington Post to New York Times, and certainly including Politico, are biased towards the priorities of U.S. foreign policy. And this article is an extraordinarily obvious uh, example. Yeah, you know, well, so for anybody who doesn't know, I run a podcast about the history of American foreign policy called Safe for Democracy. And anybody who has listened to that regularly knows that my shows keep getting longer and longer, and I keep doing longer series to cover shorter periods of history. And the reason that happens is I come into them, like the show that I wanted to do about the first 10 years of the Shah in Iran, with a lot of preconceived notions. And I think that it's going to be a really short show, because uh, I kind of already know everything that's going on. But what I do in the course of those is I investigate every one of my assumptions. And what ends up happening every time is that there's a lot of detail there that I didn't know and that my audience, which is largely American, probably doesn't know either. And what this article is, is paragraph after paragraph after paragraph full of unexamined and totally false assumptions about Iran, about foreign policy, and about the way the United States has related to other countries in the world for the last 60 years. Yeah. And before we get into this, I, I think it's important to emphasize that this isn't Breitbart. This isn't, uh, this isn't some crazy fake news outlet. This is uh, Politico, while it may not be as famous as, say, the New York Times, is supposedly a serious media organization. And uh, I, while this article is particularly egregious, I don't think it's very different from what we would see in the New York Times. It's, it's well, let's... let's uh, Let's get into it. I don't, think, I don't want to read the entire thing, but I think it's worth reading the second paragraph here because it sort of sets up sort of what the view of the article is going to be. So, second, uh, second paragraph. Supporters of dislodging Iran's iron-fisted clerical leadership say it's the only way to halt Tehran's dangerous behavior from its pursuit of nuclear weapons to its sponsorship of terrorism. Critics say that political meddling in Iran, where memories of a 1953 CIA-backed coup remain vivid, risks a popular backlash that would only empower hardliners. So that's, that's interesting. I mean, clearly the negative view of Iran comes first. But what I think is missing here is any common sense at all, frankly, because what this is doing is setting up a false choice for the article. On the one hand, Iran is really terrible. And regime change is something we should do. Critics say that it might not work. There's no, there's no, no voice in this article anywhere for the idea that regime change has never worked, that regime change is a terrible idea. Regime change is amoral, and it destroys countries and makes the world less safe. None of that is in here. And it, it's, uh, the, the, the article proceeds from there on that understanding. And this is just something that is, is not, not covered here. It's not even interesting. And they, they, they so I, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, I think probably preliminarily we should lay out what we think about the idea of regime change in Iran <laughs> and why that's a pretty terrible, terrible idea. Well, if I could, I don't think we need to do a phrase by phrase analysis of the article, but I really want to get into this paragraph just for a second, because it gets to what I was just saying that, um, I know the guy that sat down and wrote this. Like, I, I could have written exactly this paragraph maybe six years ago. You know, he sat down, he had an article to write. Really, the story is what these people in the administration are saying. So he just dashes off this paragraph to give you a little context. And the problem is, it's so loaded with false, false knowledge. It's not even assumptions. So we've got Iran's iron-fisted clerical leadership. Well, what's contained in that is a denial of the fact that Iran just had a free and fair election. I mean, we, not, we might not like the system in which it took place, but people voted and elected a moderate. Who desperately wants to engage with the United States. Exactly. And, and it, it's, it's extraordinary that we're just, that after that, which happened less than a month or perhaps just about a month ago, the Trump administration is seriously considering and participating in putting out articles like this. 
You've got one side that's like, okay, we've got a really rough history, but it'd be great if we could work together to defuse this whole situation. And then you've got the other side in the United States who is like essentially saying, fuck you. Yeah. What's going on here? That is what is incredibly inadequately portrayed in this article. But you've got to read between the lines to say this because the basic assumption of this article is that peace is impossible, Iran is evil, and regime change is the right way to handle it. Yeah. So just, just continuing in the second half of that first sentence, we say it's the only way to halt Tehran's dangerous behavior from pursuit of nuclear weapons to sponsorship of terrorism. Well, in the last show that you and I did, we looked at Iranian sponsorship of terrorism and said that's pretty much bunk. And then the other thing is, it's the only way to halt Tehran's development of nuclear weapons. President Obama concluded an extremely successful diplomatic initiative to curtail Iranian nuclear development. I mean, there's a total falsehood what's happening right here and a denial of that same thing that had already happened. And Iran is complying with that agreement vigorously enough to have not given the Trump administration which an excuse to break it, which the Trump administration... Yeah as is laid out in this article, desperately wants an excuse to break it. Yeah, and in the absence of that evidence, they're just pretending as if it was already extant. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. I think it's it's important to, to just, or it might be worthwhile just to back up for a second and take a look at the larger context of regime change. We've now got a a broadening arc of the Middle East that has been destroyed by U.S. regime change policies. Nobody disputes that the toppling of the Iraqi regime caused chaos. Many people dispute that similar methods were used in Syria. Different methods were used in Syria, but they were the kinds of methods that this article is talking about using. And they have failed. They have failed miserably, and they have caused incredible suffering. So it's extraordinary to me, and I think probably to you also, that after having seen extraordinary failure of regime change in both Iraq and Syria, that the government would be seriously considering applying this to another regime. It's it's nuts. Also, Iran is a much larger country than either Syria or Iraq. So we're talking about incredible destabilization of a very central country. That's that's what they're aiming for here. And it's just... Yeah. What is right now maybe the most stable country in the Middle East? One of the most populous, almost 80 billion people there. And something interesting, we always keep, we always keep telling people to go back and look at this map. But if the United States did what Donald Trump and Jim Mattis want to do and somehow make war in Iran or try to destabilize it, We'd have a solid swathe of states destabilized by the United States from the Himalayas to the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. I mean, you you think that the refugee problems that are currently destabilizing Europe at the moment, I mean, you think those problems are bad now? If this was successful, this would be horrifying. Um, but I, I, in case in case we've already got people asking questions or whatever, I challenge anybody to find a successful instance of U.S. regime change. It, it they don't they don't really exist. And also, well, as this article points out, at the very bottom, there is a real moderate movement in Iran. They really want to to extend their hands. If we took any of the steps that are suggested. I mean, there's barely a veneer on that, suggested by this article, then uh, that moderation would disappear. It would make the hardliners much, much more powerful. It's it's extraordinary. What's interesting, too, is although they have quotes from Iranian moderates at the bottom of the article, about halfway through, they talk about the Green Movement in 2009 that happened during Iranian or after Iranian elections. And the second half of this paragraph says, Many analysts say that virtually no organized anti-regime opposition movement survives today. Well, that's that's true if you take anti-regime opposition movement as like armed resistance on the streets. But if you take it as, you know, political opposition in parties, there's tons of them, man. Well, what's what's extraordinary, I, I called out that paragraph on Twitter at Rob Law because, I mean, those two paragraphs are other are other ones worth worth reading in full. Full In June 2009, allegations of election rigging sparked mass street protests known as the Green Movement. 
that briefly seemed to threaten Khomeini's regime. Khomeini is the supreme leader. The protests were brutally suppressed, and many analysts say virtually no organized anti-regime opposition movement survives today. Next sentence. New paragraph, next sentence. There are signs of moderation within Iran's system, including President Rouhani's election by a comfortable margin and the success of reformist candidates in May municipal elections. This is extraordinary. It's as if it doesn't matter. It's not positive movement unless people are dying in the streets. It's like this author and these analysts want another Syria in Iran. You know, it's easy. I Honestly, I've been, I've been maybe because I went to to school to study international relations and I've been so steeped in kind of the standard American narrative about what's going on abroad that I can almost read this article without any cognitive dissonance at all. Because you have all these assumptions up in your brain, like Iran is brutal. So you read that paragraph and you're like, yeah, pro- protest brutally suppressed. And then they say, but free elections that he won by what, 50, 57%, 58%? Yeah, I believe it was 57, 58. And then I think the, the conservative opposition, the hardliner, couldn't get over 40. So like 37, yeah. 38, something like that. And somehow having this set of false knowledge. A landslide, a landslide yeah. victory for the moderate sort of successor to the green movement. I, I don't think that's really an overstatement. No, no, not at all. But only if you have this set of unexamined assumptions in your brain, can you read those two paragraphs back to back and not be just totally baffled by what's going on in this article? It, it's <clears throat> absolutely extraordinary. Jumping back up to the top, it, yeah. it, I think because enough of the people who know a bit about foreign policy and would be interested enough to read this article know that there was a CIA-backed coup in 1953, he kind of has to mention it. So he does mention that. Yeah, I, I, I looked at that too, but it's, man, that whole sentence. So critics say political meddling in Iran. Well, meddling is a really weak word for what they're actually proposing, which is warfare, uh, you know, clandestine or otherwise. It's warfare. It's not political, quote unquote, meddling. And, and I, I, I think that gets to the, the nature of regime change and what we're actually suggesting. We're not necessarily suggesting putting in hundreds of thousands of U.S. soldiers. You can do regime change through other means, which is what we've seen in Syria over the past seven years. And it's the consequences are horrific. Yeah. And every word in the sentence is meant to elide the actual truth of what went on. You know, it wasn't a CIA-backed coup. It was CIA-planned and CIA-executed. And then, you know, you've got that, but you, we ignore the fact that the CIA and the United States supported the Shah for the whole 20 years that, that followed, and that at the time of the Iranian Revolution, we went on to basically pay Iraq to make war on Iran for 10 years. All of that, all of that is missing from this sentence. And it's incredibly uh, relevant to the question, I think, right? And also missing from this article. I, I think yeah. with the, the third paragraph, we get to something that another very, very central issue. And that, that's why President Barack Obama assured Iranians in a 2013 speech at the United Nations that we are not seeking regime change. There is no mention in this entire article of the Iran-Iraq war. The Shah does get a mention in a particularly ludicrous manner, which we will discuss later. But something very, very important happened in 2002. It was President Bush's Axis of Evil speech. And you cannot understand any action that Iran has taken over the past 15 years without understanding that in 2002, President Bush got up in front of Congress and multiple television cameras and essentially declared war on Iran. There was no formal declaration, but he said that Iran, Iraq, and North Korea were part of an axis of evil that needed to be taken out. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the message. So all of Iran's actions, and some of them have been very negative. They were, uh, they were actively fighting U.S. soldiers in Iraq. Have to be understood in the terms of the fact that in 2002, we essentially declared war against them. And in 2013, Obama said, no, wait. We're not looking for regime change. We are open to backing off. And there were incredibly positive results to that from that, like the initial election of Rouhani, uh, who th- he was reelected uh, a month ago. I can't recall for four or five year terms, but he was initially elected, I think, as a result of Obama's extended hand. And it's, it's just extraordinary that, they, that this article can jump from pointing out that Iran is incredibly insecure 
to three or four paragraphs of what Tom Cotton thinks of what an, uh, a, I don't have much knowledge or much of anything positive to say about his approach to domestic policy, but I'm very aware that Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas, has been doing his best to crush any positive motion between Iran and the United States. And this article's choice to give the sort of third through sixth paragraphs to what Tom Cotton thinks is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, well, I mean, just, ah, oh, man. All right, so so we'll get into what he says about uh, ethnic minorities in Iran a little bit later. But, you know, I just, I just, I just love uh, hypocrisy from our elected officials. But he talks about how these poor, exploited ethnic minorities in Iran. You know, Tom Cotton comes from Arkansas, a state that just, I mean, just like in the last couple of weeks, doubled down on voter suppression. Tom Cotton has a grade in the low 20s from the NAACP. Tom Cotton systematically discriminates against gays, transsexuals, blacks, Latinos, and every other group that exists on the margin of the United States. And he has the gall, the gall, to try to propose that we uh, we somehow back opposition groups for armed rebellion in Iran. That's bad. It's just it's blowing my mind, man. I mean, let's I mean, let's let's get into Tom Cotton. Now, he does say one thing. There's a whole sentence that Tom Cotton says that I think is accurate to a degree, though it's it's sort of maximalist and blown out of proportion. I don't see how anyone can say America can. So this is direct quote from Tom Cotton. I don't see how anyone can say America can be safe as long as you have in power a theocratic despotism. I agree. But I wouldn't say that Iran is a theocratic despotism. I would say that U.S. allies, Saudi Arabia, is a theocratic despotism. But this Politico article has no interest in pointing that out. It's, it's, it's extraordinary that he can talk about this country as if there's nothing else going on there other than theocracy, and then make this very broad statement that applies much more strongly to a U.S. ally than it does to Iran. The, the thing about it is there are theocracies in the world. Most of them, I think, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I think most of them exist in the Middle East. And then you've got Bhutan, which is kind of on that road or whatever. But the point is there are uh, many countries in which theocrats have a role in government. And we don't automatically assume that any of those are in some way a danger to the safety of the United States. And the only reason that he's able to say this kind of thing about Iran is we have an inbuilt suspicion. But Iran, what what attack has Iran launched on the United States in the last 20 years? What are we pointing to that says that they're a danger to us because they have this kind of government? Yeah, it, it, there's, 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 there's really nothing. And it, now, I mean, it's, it's not just theocratic, and Iran definitely is theocratic, but a theocratic despotism. That sort of implies that there's nothing else going on in Iran, and that is simply not true. Let's, I mean, let's, let's move on, I suppose. Cotton advocated a combination of economic, diplomatic, and covert actions to pressure Tehran's government and support internal domestic dissent in the country. He noted that Iran has numerous minority ethnic groups, including Arabs, Turkmen, and Balaks, who aren't enthusiastic about living in a Persian Shiite despotism. So yeah, he's advocating. He's advocating balkanizing Iran. Yeah, I can't imagine... Well, I know that I don't know of, and I could not imagine a situation in which trying to launch an ethnically based armed opposition could ever result in a stable situation. In a, I mean, you know, even even if like everything went somehow great, that this didn't blow back in our faces, that we armed these groups, that they overthrew the government, is there any way that doesn't end in like ethnic cleansing of Persians in Iran? There's just there's no upside to this, even in the most rosy, insane power fantasy. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's extraordinary. And, and I mean, what, the, what the, real, the real message of that is, is these guys don't care. What they'd like to do is make Iran like Iraq, to just totally blow it up. Yep. Um, that's a pretty, that's pretty short, it's pretty short-sighted, yeah. Pretty short-sighted. Uh, the, I mean, the idea that, the, I mean, if you did something like that, then yes, you would see 80 million Iranians getting very, very interested in extreme forms of terrorism, which they have not been largely since 9-11. With the caveat that yes, they have carried out actions against Israel, but that's not that's not a 9/11. That's not a large-scale attacks on American tourists or attacks on the United States. And this this kind of policy, even if it were successful, would guarantee that sort of thing. 
It's uh, it's just nuts. Now, this article does do something useful. I think it 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 it, it usefully points to the views of people both in and associated with the Trump administration. I was not aware that Rex Tillerson, who I mostly in a last ditch of hope at this point, try to look at as occasionally sane, uh, has basically said that he is not opposed to regime change. That's tragic. But when this writer and this news source or any kind of real news source, you know, introduces these statements, they should actually discuss to some degree what that actually means. Not in two half-assed paragraphs at the end saying that, oh, wait, maybe this policy wouldn't work out so well. I mean, you just got to, the ability to just sort of ignore all of history here is is pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. And I I think we'll we'll speed this up in a minute and get it, get it going at like, you know, more than a paragraph every 10 minutes. But the thing it's got from Tillerson is that he wants the U.S. to work with Iranian opposition groups toward the, quote, peaceful transition of that government, unquote. So when he talks about peaceful transition of the government, what he means is moving to an entirely different constitutional system, right? Because what they're worried about is the, the quote-unquote despotism of the supreme leader. Well, this would be like Iran announcing it's going to work with the Michigan militia for the peaceful overthrow of the U.S. government. It's, it's, it's bonkers. It doesn't make any sense at all. And it's incredible that an outlet that aspires to the objectivity that political does would let that go unexamined. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it mentions the completely sensible and negative response of the Iranian government to this. But it's in response, Iranian foreign minister Javad Zarif, apologies for the pronunciation, lashed out on Twitter. Lashed out on Twitter. Like, the, the, this is... The United States has essentially said, yeah, we're interested in overthrowing your government. A response to that is not lashing out. It's a, it's a very rational, appropriate response. It's not, it's not, his response was that the United States was reverting to unlawful and delusional regime change policy. That is completely accurate. Yeah, and it, but this article describes that as a lashing out. I mean, lashing out is not something that applies to language that is so staid in middle of the road. What this tweet and the, the subsequent tweet, which I like a lot, should have received was exactly the same kind of coverage that the tweets from the mayor of London got when he kind of shat on Trump when Trump was trying to shit on him because he you know, had two terrorist attacks in his city. Because the second, the second part of this tweet, or maybe the second tweet, is, uh, quote, U.S. officials should worry more about saving their own regime than changing Iran's, unquote, which I thought was super awesome, but probably pretty poorly received in our White House. Our embattled, our embattled White House. Uh, it's and you know uh, on Wednesday, Iran's ambassador to the United Nations filed a formal protest, uh, saying it revealed a brazen interventionist plan that runs counter to every norm and principle of international law. These things are true. And what's good about that paragraph too is that there's a group, a citizens group in Iran that wrote a public letter also condemning what Tillerson had done from the Iranian opposition. These, the Iranian opposition does not want the United States help, man. The, and and the, the United States does not, is not capable of helping opposition forces in a useful way. It's, uh, it, it, it has always led to disaster. And I'm not saying that our government should stay silent in the face of human rights abuses. I'm not saying that our government should not speak out when voices within another country are abused or arrested or i mean that is tremendously tremendously valuable what our government should not be doing is looking to coordinate and uh, facilitate these opposition voices because it becomes exactly the sort of thing that basically every country in the world both allies and enemies expects that the u.s government does which is participate in the overthrow and manipulation of foreign governments. And when it becomes that, there's an exact parallel here. Uh, there's the uh, Russian intervention in the U.S. election. Has, has Russian made itself friends in the United States here? You've got Republicans talking about how this, you've got many, many Republicans talking about how Russia's intervention in the election was horrific and we should have sanctions and we, we, we should attack them. It's extraordinary that going much, much, much further than Russia did in our election in Iran is just sort of seen as A-OK, -okay, just fine. Well, I mean, it's, it speaks to something that, that comes up over and over again in my shows, which is that we have 
this blinkered inability to see any other political system in the terms that we see our own, especially if the people living in that system are not white. Because if you talked about the U.S. interfering in France's elections, people would be like, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes. That seems pretty strange. But you talk about financing opposition groups in Iran. It's like, well, yeah, that's par for the course. That's fine. Yeah, we're going to we're going to help. Uh, we're going to help. And these groups that Cotton is talking about, you know, don't amount to what, 10 to 15 percent, more than 10 to 15 percent of the population. I mean, I think all told, actually, the, the you might be more familiar with this. I think sort of Persian Iranians are only about 70 percent less even of the population of Iran. But all these small groups that are going to be probably as interested in competing with each other as they are with Iran are, are something like, you know, 10 to 15 percent. So it's just a recipe. It's a recipe for a horrific sectarian nightmare, which is what we have in Iraq and Syria. And suggesting that we could, we should just, you know, set that up in Iran too. That'd be great. It's just crazy. Yeah. And I mean, in as much, in as much as there are, you know, ethnic groups who do this, this situation of ethnic groups in Iran, I think is, is much more or much closer to that of the autonomous regions in Spain and what they'd be angling for versus, you know, like the Balkans. And of all the countries in the Middle East, in terms of managing, you know, restive internal populations, I think Iran is probably the most successful in those terms. So then we get into uh, National Security Council spokesman, uh, Michael Anton, which is kind of fascinating. Are you familiar with this figure, Michael Anton? I'm not. No, I'm not. We've got this. So I think I have more of a more of a direct line to sort of Trumpian thinking and whatnot. Uh, Michael Anton became famous writing under a pseudonym as uh, Publius Decius Mus or something like that, uh, hmm. just generally known as Decius. Gosh, I may even be mispronouncing that. It'd be embarrassing. He wrote an article called The Flight 93 Election, which got a lot of play. What was interesting is that he's, he's the intellectual for Trump. I mean, but he's the big one as far as making the intellectual case for Trump when Trump was sort of roaring through the primaries and sort of conservative thinkers were trying to come to grips with the idea that Trump was going to be the nominee. This guy writing under a pseudonym, because I think rationally he thought there would be negative implications for his career were he to support Trump too openly, wrote a series of articles that were all about the failures of the Republican Party in the 16 years leading up to this election, to the 2016 election. He talked a lot about economic issues and trade and whatnot, but he wrote, I think, actually quite persuasively about the Republican Party's complete failures with their policy of permanent war. He's, he's, a, he's a very clever writer, and uh, he wrote some great articles about just how insane Republican foreign policy had been. And it's, it's pretty fascinating that uh, he shows up again in this article trying desperately to salvage that as the Trump administration shows that it's actually going for the exact same policy that the Bush administration went with and also very similar to what the Obama administration went with, which is just continuing permanent war, continuing and expanding the forever war. So it was interesting seeing Michael Anton pop up here. So an, an explicit affirmation of regime change in Iran as a policy is not really on the table, Anton said, sort of desperately hoping, where uh, the rest of the article makes it pretty clear that he'll uh, either have to resign or be in a position of defending exactly the same policy that he spoke so eloquently against. We're not trying to get into this right now, but, uh, you know, there's just there comes a point when the only thing you can do to protest the thing that you're a part of is to resign and people sticking with the Trump administration when it becomes more and more obvious that there is just no good that's ever going to come out of you sticking around. It, be, it becomes unconscionable. And I think a lot of the guys who are sticking around right now, including Anton, are going to be permanently tainted by their association with pretty much everything that's going on in the White House right now. It's uh, pretty extraordinary. And uh, the, the article is depressing in that it lays out that the Secretary of State is open to this. The CIA director last year publicly called for congressional action to change Iranian behavior and ultimately the Iranian regime. This is supposedly what was supposed to be a switch, what was supposed to be a new, more sensible Trump policy is, is not because he's got a lot of a lot of folks in his administration who are basically the less saner 
sets of the Republican Party policy elite, not that any of them weren't committed to the idea of Iranian regime change. Yeah. All right. So um, a little further on, we start getting into why exactly we need to we need to be taking action against Iran. So we've got a couple of paragraphs down from where we were from Michael Einstein, which is that uh, along with Tillerson, key Trump officials are on the record as saying that Iran will remain a U.S. enemy until the clerical re- leaders and military officials who control the country's political system are deposed. So I've got a, I've got a really long note here. So I, I went and looked up on the State Department's website, you know, U.S. arms sales from the last year or just just from January to now. So we've got arms and training to the Philippines where Duterte is running a pseudo autocratic government. We've got arms, tanks, planes, and training to the Saudis, which, you know, we've talked about the Saudis. We've got arms and training to Morocco, which is a pseudo-democratic place. We've got arms to Turkey, along with the Trump administration very visibly trying to cozy up to Erdogan, who is doing his best to turn that into a pseudo-theocratic autocracy. We've got arms and training to Qatar, along with our huge base there. And inasmuch as we were kind of rooting for Qatar in our last show, Qatar also practices Sharia law and has human rights abuses that Amnesty International has documented pretty thoroughly. And I, I mentioned Sharia law not because I'm personally opposed to Sharia law or whatever, but if our problem is specifically Islamic theocracy, well, it, apparently it wasn't a problem in Qatar. Arms and training to Egypt run by junta of generals. Arms and training to the autocratic United Arab Emirates. You know, stable, but repressive and run by a coalition of different hereditary monarchs. Guns to Bahrain, even the entire time it was murdering people under the state security law from the 70s to the 90s. And Amnesty's 2015 report was, like, pretty damning. So, uh, what is it about Iran, man? Why is it Iran and not every one of these other places to which we funnel just billions and billions of dollars of arms and training? It's inertia. It's it's inertia. It's it's the fact that we're, we're tremendously bothered by the fact that they betrayed us in 1979. You know, the, the hostage crisis, despite the fact that we're coming up on 40 years, it being 40 years back, is something that a lot of people still remember. And our system needs to have enemies. So we've created a self-fulfilling prophecy with Iran. Despite the fact that really at any point at which they weren't being physically attacked, they or their neighbors weren't being physically attacked by the United States or its allies. They've, they've tried desperately to bring about peace with us. We, we, just, we just continue to be in opposition. And you've got that in media, as this article shows. You've got that in think tanks. You've got that with the, the folks that run our government in Congress and throughout the Pentagon and, and the defense industries. It's, it's just, it's, it's inertia, I think, is my is my best explanation. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to get to one more thing before we move on to the, you know, the best worst paragraph in this whole piece. And the one right before that, the one right before the Shaw paragraph is that uh, a memo from administration officials have said that Trump has an instrumental role to play in discrediting the regime. Quote, no one has greater power to mobilize dissent abroad than the American president. Unquote. The memo states setting a goal of, quote, a tolerant government that adheres to global norms, unquote. So my only note there is pot and kettle. So at the same time, at the same time that the United States is uh, talking about in this memo, the Iranian government not abiding by international norms, the U.S. has publicly advocated regime change in that country. And the Iranian response was to write letters to the United Nations, which there could be no more norm-abiding thing to do. And just a couple weeks out from the United States unilaterally pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, the, the, the blindness, the failure to examine any anything coming out of the coming out of the administration this article i mean it's 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 a disastrous failure of journalistic obligation come on john you know that the rules are different for us well well, apparently politico thinks they are and and it's not just politico i mean this this is this is this is standard standard dealing with these issues one of the most troubling aspects of this article is the way that I, i gosh i don't know i haven't i should have done a word count but almost a third of it is taken up with reproducing the views of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. You know, it's sort of repeated as, oh, the FDD memo says, and this, da, 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 but it's not, it's not criticized at all. This guy just cut and pasted a number of outrageous claims from an FDD memo, and that's a third of the article. 
Uh, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies has been around for a while. I think that's another problem with a lot of these think tanks is that you've got this, this incredible infrastructure of think tanks that may or may not have done decent work during the Cold War, depending on your opinion on the Cold War. And they just sort of needed a reason to exist after that. And Iran is one of their reasons to exist. The article does describe the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies as a hawkish Washington think tank. That puts it very, very mildly. The Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, you said, you say, say something, John, that during the 80s, one of their founders, one of their founders, Jean Kirkpatrick, actually had a militia named after her in Nicaragua or something? Yeah, so I'd, I'd have to look this up to find out the, exactly the country. But So I, w- I went to Georgetown, and one of our great shames is that Jean Kirkpatrick was a professor at Georgetown, and she wrote a lot of position papers defending Reagan military adventurism in Central America to the point that a death squad in one of those countries and I think it was I think it was Nicaragua but it might have been Honduras it might have been Guatemala named themselves after Jean Kirkpatrick because she was such such a voice in their favor in Washington DC that they honored her by uh, naming themselves after her and just just to uh, uh, I don't want to get into Central America at great length, but Jean Kirkpatrick's plan to use the Contras to overthrow Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua has failed because uh, 30 years later, Daniel Ortega is the president of Nicaragua. So the moral aspects, which I think appeal more to uh, appeal more to you, John, are one thing, but also the complete failure of this policy of the you know the pet project of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Is, is pretty indicative. There are two options when the U.S. goes in big for regime change. We either destroy the country with horrific, horrific consequences, as we have in Afghanistan. I'm talking about Afghanistan in the 80s. Taliban is an outgrowth of that. Afghanistan, uh, Syria, and Iraq. Or you can just make the question, the country in question much more powerful, which is, or the worst elements of the country in question much more powerful, which has been the case in Iran, which has been the case in Nicaragua. Though actually, I don't want to overstate that. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to put my stamp on everything. Anything we're talking about on, uh, yeah. Well, no, because Nicaragua has has had a democratic transition, and Ortega is now has been elected multiple times. But it's it's not it's not a flawless not a flawless. Yeah, it's, it's going south there, but I'd I have to make a whole series of arguments about how when you start up you know, foreign-funded right-wing reactionary militia groups and start to murder people all over the country, you necessarily drive what was originally a democratic and, and popularly supported socialist movement in a more, in a more unfortunately brutal direction. So, you know, there's, no, there's, there's never going to be any knowing what Ortega might have been if we hadn't funded the Contras. But what we have is Ortega now, who is inextricably linked to, to massacres that we funded in his country. Yeah. And uh, I think we talked at great length in an earlier conversation about how Iran could, the Iranian revolution could have ended up in a much better place if it weren't for the Iran-Iraq war that we uh, supported and facilitated. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get into that now. Um, so just the fact that the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a sort of wingnut, hawkish Washington think tank, gets to gets to have a third of this article uncriticized is pretty extraordinary. I think that we should move to uh, yeah, the, really the, the most, best the worst most, paragraph here. Well, the, the most ridiculous paragraph in this in this article, which is the one that convinced convinced me to to run this, to to go through this this article in detail. In 1979, Iran underwent an Islamic revolution that overthrew a pro-US Shah who counted Richard Nixon and Andy Warhol among his friends, replacing him with a Shiite fundamentalist government fiercely hostile to the U.S. and Israel. That's for the only appearance of the Shah in this article. That's pretty extraordinary. Uh, you want to you wanna start or you want me to start? Um, well, the pro-U.S. Shah sort of, uh, well, I, I think I'll start, and please correct me if I'm, Sure. Uh, yeah. Doing this wrong. I actually I got most of this from uh, your first couple episodes on Iran, your Safety for Democracy podcast. Iran underwent an Islamic revolution. In the second paragraph of this article, they did mention the 1953 coup. What's interesting about the Shah is that he wasn't just installed by an imperialist power once, he was installed by an imperialist power twice. 
1941, the leader of Iran, the Shah in question's father, tried to take a sort of Turkey-style policy of neutrality during World War II, and he failed. He was probably never going to be able to get away with that, as he shared a border at that time with the Soviet Union, and I believe at that point he was still sharing a border with the British Empire. Don't quote me on that. Uh, So he was replaced, and uh, his son, the Shah we're talking about, was installed. Then there was some pushback from the Iranian people. The constitution became more of a reality. There was a parliament. And in 1953, a CIA-planned coup dealt with the parliament. So this guy was, it, it's, he wasn't just pro-U.S. He was a U.S. creature. And his, his impact on Iran was pretty negative. And I think you're much better suited to talk about that, John. Yeah, so the real tragedy of 1953 isn't just that we installed another puppet somewhere in the world, but that Iran, you know, partly because it's part of this more or less continuous society that goes back to the earliest days of human civilization, was one of the most cosmopolitan, well-organized countries in the Middle East. And in 1953, it was carrying on a pretty, a pretty successful experiment with democracy. One, one, correct, well, one emphasis. So the most, one of the most cosmopolitan and well-organized countries in the Middle East. No, that's, not, yeah, I, I thought I said that. Yeah, you did. You did. But I wanted okay. to sort of, I mean, like by the standards of, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't Switzerland, but there was real hope and real progress. And yeah, and a, a burgeoning, a burgeoning middle class and civil society participation in government. I mean, it, something that looked like it was going to be, you know, the next member of the Democratic Club. And what we did was we shut that down because we needed a secure or we felt ourselves to need a secure supply of oil. And we were afraid that Iran was too close to Russia and that it had too strong of a socialist movement. So we stepped in and we reinstalled the Shah. And what happened after that point is Iran ceased to be a kind of parliamentary democracy and became an autocracy with with kind of an upjumped king at the head of it. Do you want me to get into uh, Savak? Like maybe yes. the reasons that the Iranian. All right. So the Iranian people after that point, had had more than just the loss of their democracy to hold against both the United States and their Shah. So in 1957, so this is four years after the coup that we set him up with, the Shah, with the direct assistance of the CIA, set up the National Intelligence and Security Organization, and the uh, acronym is SAVAK. So just a couple of stats here. So uh, an Iranian historian named Irvan Abrahamian, in his book Between Two Revolutions, cites a figure of over 5,000 full-time agents with Savak by the time he was studying in the 1970s, with some unknown but much larger network that might have been as large as 200,000 people all reporting to this intelligence agency. You had a society in Iran that was totally, totally penetrated by government informants with the accompanying chilling effects on speech and art and really any kind of freedom. So Amnesty International in the mid-1970s reported that the number of political prisoners in Iran could be anywhere from 25,000 to 75,000 at any given time. Reza Barahani, who escaped a Savak torture prison in the 1970s and emigrated to the United States, wrote that somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 political prisoners had been in prison between the creation of Savak and 1976. In just one summer, during the June Muharram uprisings in Iran in 1963, 6,000 people were murdered by Savak and other American-trained security forces in the country. Really, in a space of a couple of weeks, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to go in and read personal testaments about this stuff to really bring across the horror of it. Yeah, actually, hold on, I might have something here. Well, yeah, and I, I think what, what's so imagine Assad. Imagine the worst image of Assad, who currently has much, much smaller sort of torture prisons operating. Imagine Assad in a country of eighty million people with the full support of the United States and a massive petroleum industry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sorry. One, one last thing here. Here's a, here's a quote from uh, item seven of Amnesty's 1976 report on Iran. Quote, all observers to trial since 1965 have reported allegations of torture, which may have been made by defendants and have expressed their own conviction that prisoners are tortured for the purpose of obtaining confessions. Alleged methods of torture include whipping and beating, electric shocks, the extraction of nails and teeth, boiling water pumped into the rectum, heavy weights hung on the testicles, tying the prisoner to a metal table heated to white heat, inserting a broken bottle into the anus, and rape, unquote. This was going on. It was well known in Iran, and at the same time, the people doing it were receiving the clandestine funding and public support of the United States. 
Yeah. So, but but he was a pro U.S. Shaw who counted Andy Warhol among his friends. Yeah, man. The other thing about that is Andy Warhol was not the Shaw's friend. The Shaw paid to bring Andy Warhol to the country. Like, the, I mean, the, the level of credulousness in this article from the most mundane thing, like claiming that Andy Warhol was somehow a friend of the Shaw, to the most serious, which is not investigating the phrase pro U.S. Shaw, uh, is is totally mind boggling. I don't want to. I think there are a lot. There, there are a number of uh, and, yeah, 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 podcasts and whatnot that do sort of reading series. And I, I want to give Michael Crowley the benefit of the doubt. It's quite possible that he did turn in a more balanced article that actually delved into some of these issues and actually provided some sense of what what regime change in Iran would actually mean. And it's possible that his editor or his publisher just took those took those slices out. I mean, it's not necessarily the case that this guy is a malign idiot. Um, he, he could have been edited to look. <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm angry at the political imprimatur that's been placed on this uh, placed on this article and necessarily the guy who uh, originally turned in the draft. I'm, I'm with you, John. This article makes me very, very angry. But I, I think it, it's not a it's not about individual writers. It's not even really about individual publications. I think you talked about it earlier. You, you got an international relations degree at Georgetown, you said? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just that, that, that way of looking at the world that is supposedly academic and critical, but just makes all of these baseline assumptions that leave out any basics of history, common sense, the ability to imagine that anybody outside of the United States might have an interest that's valid or worth acknowledging. It, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. The other thing that relates especially to where I went to school is there's, I, you know, I, I think especially Georgetown's working on eliminating this kind of thing now, but there's, there's a feeling in the international relations community or maybe a kind of nostalgia to the good old days when, you know, a bunch of guys in cool suits and brow line glasses would get together you know, McNamara's whiz kids or the wise men under Kennedy, and they'd smoke cigarettes and decide the fate of the world. And it was not only something that they were able to do, but it was right that they were doing it. You know, they were the guys from Harvard and the guys from Princeton and the guys from Yale, and they had both the power and the ability to move pieces on the global chessboard. And what we discovered pretty disastrously decade after decade is that we don't have the ability, we don't have the know-how, and something that I care more about maybe than you do is that we don't have the right to be doing that to people. I, what I think is uh, what I would, I mean, it's not that I don't care about. No, it's, it's just, it's more, it's higher, it's higher on my list of, uh, yeah. That's for sure. Because I, I frankly, I, what I'm trying to do with this channel is persuade people that there is a better way of looking at the world, a more rational way of looking at the world, and that the world would be safer if we engaged in it. Unfortunately, for most Americans, just the, the, I've been guilty of this in the past. I probably still am quite guilty of it. We just sort of believe that we're right. And that's, that's sort of a, a fundamental belief that makes people angry when you challenge it. So I don't want to make people angry. I want to make people see. Because I do, I think. I think I am a little more engaged than you are in American power. And I think that American power has had positive effects in the aggregate, even though almost none of our particular foreign policy approaches to individual countries, armed regime change, falling under the armed regime change uh, approach, have been successful. I, I do think that American power is worthwhile. I do think that it has had a stabilizing effect that has allowed much of the world to emerge from poverty. I, I think that, that the, the American world order is worth preserving. And I think that we've been in a position have this series of unmitigated catastrophes in Vietnam and Guatemala and Iran and I mean, Syria and on and on and on and on and on without real consequences. We have been powerful. For, for us. For us. For, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. For us. We have been powerful enough and we have been rich enough compared to everyone else in the world that we've been able to just sort of continue sailing on, knowing nothing about the world that we have the effect on the, the, the world that we are the largest effect on. So I think you said that we don't have the capability. I, I, I do think, I don't think we have the capability to make people see things in other, make people in other countries see things the way that we want them to, but we do have an immense capability to destroy. And I think that's what your podcast is about. Just the, the destruction that we, we have wrought 
with our faulty assumptions. And I think yeah. that we're, we're still powerful enough that we can, we can certainly last out a Trump administration and another decade or two after that, knowing essentially nothing about how the world works and the real effects yeah. of our policies. Like another decade or two. Heck, maybe, you know, depending on what happens in China and if Europe can ever get its act back together, maybe 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 a full half century. But eventually we're going to we're going to reap the whirlwind on this. Uh, we're not going to be the incredibly massive power that we always have been, or at least since World yeah. War Two. Uh, we're not going to have that dominant power. And if we're still reading articles like this, if we're still at a point where the education that you got is what passes for international relations knowledge. If we're still at that point, we are screwed. Like if we get to a point where, I mean, according to purchasing power parity, uh, China is already a larger economy than the United States. I don't put too much weight behind that. They've got their own problems, but the, the, the direction of these, of these dynamics are clear. You know, the United States is I think under 20% of world GDP today. And 50 years from now, it'll be under 15 or 10 percent. And we are no longer going to be in the position where we can just rampage through the world like bulls in a china shop. And we're not going to improve if this article is what we have to look at. Yeah. So trying to bring bring this back to the situation at hand and kind of kind of square square our circles here. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm with you in the sense that there are times when America can use its great power and wealth to improve the lot of or improve world situations. You know, the Marshall Plan is is the example par excellence of, of U.S. money and know-how going towards the recuperation of a particular area of the world. And the parts of U.S. foreign policy that are based on a similar philosophy. Like, you know, I was in the Peace Corps, and I think even though what the Peace Corps does is always necessarily small scale, it's of the best of our programs because it's not expensive, it's well-meaning through and through. It generates no ill will. And it does, in its own small way, improve the lot of people all over the world and improve the way that they look at the United States. And, you know, maybe half of what USAID falls into that same boat and a lot of uh, our international aid, even though a lot of our aid actually takes the form of, you know, missiles and guns. But something I was reading today leaves me not particularly optimistic about the chances of us using that kind of diplomacy to relate to countries like Iran. Because, and this is going to go on for just a bit longer, because if you really wanted to facilitate regime change in Iran in the sense of moderating their politics, the best thing that you could do is embrace them with open arms. Because putting American television and American products and American students into a country is the surest way to bring them closer to the United States. And the best way to do the opposite of that is to try to publicly bring down their government. Yeah. So, uh, you'd think that would be basic, right? Yeah. Like people don't yeah. like it no. when you come into their house, reorganize everything and tell them how it should be. Exactly. And so the last the last thing here is that maybe the three guys most anti-Iran, you know, the three guys with any actual influence in the Trump administration are Mike Pompeo, who runs the CIA, uh, who's not who's not one of these guys that we think of as like one of the adults in the room. James Mattis, who is one of those guys. And H.R. McMaster, who is another one of these you're supposed to be the guys who are kind of minding Trump. Yeah. Well, everybody knows that McMaster is kind of a historian. You know, he wrote that book about uh, Vietnam, whose, whose name I can't recall right now. Dereliction the thing, or something? Exactly, yeah. But the thing is, he's talked about his opinion of political movements, and what he really doesn't like is left history, quote-unquote left history, which is self-critical U.S. history that says, like, you know, maybe what we did in Vietnam wasn't wrong necessarily only because it didn't work, but because we shouldn't have been there in the first place. That, that the idea of military-based regime change was, was a bad idea. So McMaster's on the record saying, quote, that we need to emphasize forward positioning of forces because deterrence by denial is what is effective. What McMaster, you know, we, we're hoping these guys are the adults in the room, but McMaster has a general's distrust of diplomacy. And in as much as we hope he's going to be a restraining influence on Trump, he hates Iran as much as James Mattis does, and he sees the military as the only way to start to address that enmity. We shouldn't be looking at Mattis and McMaster as the guys who are going to keep us out of a situation in this in this region. That's uh, that's an important. I, I think I think Mattis in particular. I think McMaster has sort of disappointed a lot of those hopes, sort of falling into sort of standard Trumpian 
wormholes in terms of public statements and whatnot. But Mattis yeah. is, I mean, Mattis is doing valuable work if you care about U.S. power. He's the guy who goes to Europe and says, no, 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 Trump's really committed to Article 5. He's not a dumbass. I mean, you know, he actually trotted out the, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's, we're in a horrifying place where the Secretary of Defense of the United States has to trot out that Winston Churchill quote saying that, you know, after doing everything else, the United States will eventually do the right thing. But uh, that's a digression. But Mattis, you know, does provide valuable sanity. I mean, Mattis and Tillerson are keeping, if Trump had his way, Saudi Arabia probably would have been bombing Qatar by now. Sorry, Qatar by now. But he's not. And I think that's, uh, that has to do with the adults in the room. So they do provide a, a valuable a valuable service. But yes, Jim Mattis hates Iran. That's that's unfortunately something that we know very well about about uh, about James Mattis. And that's a real problem, because if if this is the, the, the main guy who acts as a governor on Trump's worst instincts and he is just itching for an excuse to fight Iran, then uh, yeah, we're, we're in some trouble. All right. Uh, do, do you think we really need to? No, I don't. I don't think I don't think we need to. I'm looking at my notes and I, I don't see anything we haven't already addressed. There is one thing that, that bothered me about the FDD memo particularly. And I had mentioned the way that a lot of these think tanks are sort of Cold War holdovers. In the FDD memo, the memo also proposed borrowing from Cold War anti-communist tactics, citing the Reagan administration's support of the Polish Solidarity Labor Movement, which helped to fracture Eastern European communism. I mean, it's fascinating that these the FDD is gravitating back towards fights against communism, but those those fights could not be any more different from what is proposed at this point because of mutually assured destruction and the fact that there was this nuclear problem that we all had to deal with. There was never going to be, at least in Eastern Europe, the funding of large-scale armed elements. And yes, the Pope and the Reagan administration reached out to the Polish Solidarity Movement and called out the, the Soviets, uh, both the Polish government and the, and the Soviet Union, when, when bad things happened to that movement. They did provide valuable support, and that did have something to do with the fall of Eastern European communism. That's great. But comparing this to a proposed policy of sectarian murder is deeply distasteful uh, uh, to me, who's someone who believes that we did good work in Eastern Europe during the Cold War. You know, they're talking about reaching out to uh, an element like the Polish Solidarity Labor Movement. Well, we already have that in Iran. A democratically elected moderate president of Iran who would love to work with us to further marginalize the hardline theocratic government. And, uh, And instead we're talking about giving arms to what kurds and azeris it's just it's insane yeah and and it's insulting frankly oh, i mean man. the solidarity labor movement was a broad-based was an element in poland that had very broad appeal and uh, we did work to broaden that appeal we should be working with Rouhani to broaden his appeal we should not be talking about regime change it's just yeah, you know, I, I don't know enough about so Sol- Sol- I know a little bit about solidarity and what went on there, but uh, what importantly, what we didn't do uh, was start clandestinely funneling them billions of dollars worth of arms, which is really what these guys were hinting at. Yeah, yeah. The uh, so I guess I mean I think we've we've done this for about an hour. Uh, we've done as close a reading as we can bear, but I think it's fair to say that we consider this article to be a, a pretty pretty extraordinary failure. Yeah, you know I. Not that I, not that I need to be telling anybody how to do their job, but what would have been a much better format for what happened here? Because basically, what this, what Politico did is it took a bunch of uh, statements from guys in the administration and a couple of memos from this FDD place, and instead of presenting those on their own and critiquing them, it kind of incorporated them into a pseudo-contextual article about Iran, right? So it gives, it gives them an air of authority that they really shouldn't have had. I would have loved to see just photocopies of those memos and the communications from the from the Trump regime just annotated. That would have been great. Just annotate those things. Call out those assumptions. Look at what's not actually true. Explain the historical context. Um, but what we got instead was was somebody basically trying to trick us into thinking that they had any, you know, any value at all. And the and and the key the key quote from this article that shows that the guy 
well, maybe the guy who wrote it or maybe the editor who looked at it or whatever, had the information there to write something better is the very last line, which is, the people have essentially chosen that they want to reform the system from within. The hardliners could hardly hide their pleasure in seeing the U.S. take on that position. There's an Iranian moderate opposition. They'd like to work within the Iranian system, and the best thing that we could possibly do for Iranian hardliners is to do exactly what the Trump administration wants to do. Yep. Yep. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, I, I, uh, Murray, man, well, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, on a uh, accelerated timetable to go through this with me. Yeah. John, thanks so much for your... I really have valued your expertise in uh, Iran. Uh, I think we've... We've probably, hopefully, we won't have the opportunity to do much more content on Iran, but uh, with this administration in power and with journalism of this quality, I think, I, I fear we may. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to be here, and I think this might be the best one of these we've done yet. You know, hopefully we don't get into a general conflict in Iran, but if we do, we'll have lots of uh, really riveting content. Bring we sure to will. We sure will be able to profit from uh, that disaster. <laughs> All right, I think with that... Uh, dark, dark ending, I will stop the broadcast. Thanks for showing up. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. <laughs> <laughs>